This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 13th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Bottleneckers are the narrow interests, the rent seekers, business people who try to shut down or otherwise regulate out of existence their competition, and they need to be stopped. So says Dick Carpenter, co-author of the new book, Bottleneckers. We spoke last month. Something Richard Epstein said a long time ago was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, and I'm sure I'm not getting it precisely correct, but it's the idea that good rules uh, governing human action are rules that are designed to accommodate a large volume of transactions. That is, the rule is clear, people understand what it means, and there's no difficulties that are presented. There's no a special favor you must seek in order to get your transactions going. And uh, from what I read from your book, this is about people who are in the business of preventing transactions. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, their entire purpose is to narrow the flow of workers into occupations so that they can enjoy some economic benefit as a result. And not only do they make these hurdles as high as possible, these bottlenecks as restrictive as possible um, in terms of how difficult it is to earn an occupational license, but what we have found over the years is that often it's incredibly difficult to understand what one has to do to get the license. So it, sometimes it's so difficult that you, we have called licensing agencies or licensing boards, and we have tried to ask them to tell us, what is it that I have to do to earn this license? As a clear objective measure. Yeah, just a clear objective measure. And not only can they not tell us, they refuse to tell us. They've actually said to us, well, you'll need to consult an attorney. These are the licensing agencies themselves, licensing boards, who either cannot or will not tell us. So not only is it, is it designed, a public policy designed to restrict flow, those who are actually responsible for it either cannot or will not tell you. What do you need to do? So uh, that's unconscionable. <laughs> so, but what is the? Is there a public rationale offered for why these uh, agencies are would not want uh, people to be aware of the clear requirements of achieving a license? I don't know that I would say there is a public rationale. There's probably more a self-protection rationale at work because they would hesitate to hand out. Uh, the wrong information, and they might be held responsible. But in the book, what we're talking about is a one of those rare public policies that actually accomplishes what it intends to do. Licensing is intended to restrict the number of people that enter an occupation. And so what we find in the book is that these licensing schemes are adopted not by, not, you know, legislators don't adopt these schemes because they're trying to protect the public, um, uh, because they, they see some perceived need to protect the public. These are adopted because those who are in the industry are actually going to the legislature and begging for the license to be created. And well, I, what are the, you know, what are the compelling reasons? There has to be uh, uh, at least no public outcry against what legislators are going to do in creating the licenses. Uh, so, I mean, what is the uh, what do legislators say about the license? They will often say what the bottleneckers say, and the bottleneckers say we need to protect public health and safety. We need to protect the public from the scourge of unregulated practice of whatever the particular 
occupation happens to be. So they will parrot what they hear from these bottleneckers. That's their rationale. Even though there's zero evidence, and when the bottleneckers go and ask for the license, they don't present any evidence. They make assertions. And at the time that the assertions made, no legislator actually says, well, do you have any evidence of that? They just accept it as if it's true, and then they go forward with the license. To what extent do lawmakers delegate to uh, agencies and boards the ability to just create these licenses and change or set the rules governing how one gets a license? So there's a significant amount of delegation. Often what will happen is the law is essentially just an enabling legislation. It creates the license, and then they will defer to this board that's now created by this enabling legislation to set the requirements to earn the license. Or even worse, what will happen is they'll create the license and then they will, they will outsource entirely to a professional association what's required in order to earn the license. So if you want to be a licensed dietitian, for instance, well, you'll have to join the Association of Nutrition and or the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics in order to earn the license. So they outsource it completely by requiring you to join this professional association. In some ways, it almost turns those associations into uh, explicit unions. Yeah, it's a, it's a gatekeeper function. That's all right. Some people have called licensing new unionism. In combating this, uh, presumably presenting evidence is useful. It is useful. That's exactly right. Uh, that evidence has proved compelling. Even the Obama White House in 2015 produced a report on licensing that was skeptical of licensing. One of the things that they noted in their review of the literature, the empirical literature, was that there did not appear to be substantial evidence that licensing is necessary in many of the occupations that are currently licensed. So it can prove helpful, um, but just it doesn't even you wouldn't even really need to have licensing. Uh, just a healthy skepticism would be helpful enough on the part of legislators when these requests are made. Now, people uh, who are familiar with the Institute for Justice know that, that, that these are the kinds of cases you deal with uh, all the time. Um, one particular example that really struck me as uh, just galling in uh, its sweep is uh, Savannah, George's uh, tour guide uh, rules. Yes. Yeah, so if you wanted to work as a tour guide in Savannah, you had to go through various different requirements. You had to go down and down and do a criminal background check. You actually had to urinate into a cup because they needed to apparently check your bio statistics. And, and you had to pay a fee, of course. And you had to take an exam, which was probably the most restrictive of the requirements. So you had essentially what was a history test for Savannah in order to earn this particular license. But and, and the logic was, well, we will, this is what the city would say. We want to make sure that the information being conveyed to tourists is accurate. But the truth is, in fact, that many, if not most, of the tours that were being offered in Savannah are, and are offered in Savannah aren't history tours. People go and they do pub tours or they do restaurant tours or they do ghost tours or all kinds of other tours that aren't really your traditional history tour. There are plenty of history tours. Is the ghost information accurate? <laughs> well, the test is not going to uh, necessarily uh, guarantee that. Uh, but there are all these different tours that are being offered that the test is completely unrelated to. And even after the fact. So let's say you are giving a history uh, tour. That's, that's your shtick, which some people do, many people do. No one actually goes out and 
checks your facts after you've passed this test. So you could go and be giving these tours and conveying complete falsities having been licensed, and no one is going to actually check that. And as, as we describe in the book, one of the, one of the individuals that I interviewed for that particular chapter, um, Savannah Dan, he has a tour company there. And so what Savannah Dan said was that people aren't coming down here to get a history lesson. They're coming to be entertained, and I am an entertainer. That's what people want. And no test is going to be able to weed out the good entertainers from the bad. And there's no, uh, presumably, uh, no penalty for providing false, <laughs> exactly. false ghost information. That's right, yes. If you convey some false ghost tour, uh, yeah, nobody's going to come and uh, revoke your license. Where do we stand with occupational licensing right now? You mentioned the Obama White House, but in, but these are overwhelmingly state and sometimes city level uh, licenses that are issued. Mm -hmm. So it, it, licensing continues apace. Uh, we're right now probably around 25% um, of the workforce needs a license to work, and the the. The creation of new licenses continues. Uh, one of the examples that we talk about in the introduction of the book is music therapists. So the American Music Therapy Association and their sister organization, the Certification Board of Music Therapists, have been very active. They've created a nationwide campaign to adopt licensing state by state in the music therapy occupation. And to earn a license in states that have already adopted regulation can be very severe. In Georgia, for instance, you have to complete a bachelor's degree or higher in an approved program, and approval comes from the Music Therapy Association. The same people will lobby for the bill. Then you'll have to pass an examination that's offered only by the Music Therapy Association. You'll pay fees to the state. You have to be 18 years of age or older, and you pass a criminal background check to be a music therapist. This is not a comment on the, qual the, the, the value of music therapy. It's a comment on the absolute lack of evidence that there's any need to protect the public from unlicensed practice of music therapy. Employers use the BA uh, as a requirement. It's a crude, blunt screening instrument that, that doesn't really say much about your qualifications. It certainly says something about your ability and willingness to deal with bureaucracy. Mm, uh, as, as a college degree will teach uh, almost anyone. Mm -hmm. But these are different in the sense that you're not working, you may not be working for someone at all. You, are work, you would be working for yourself as an independent uh, owner-operator. What difference does that make? Yeah, so uh, there are two, a couple of thoughts there. One is that the employer should have the ability to discern. Uh, they're relying, as you suggest, very heavily on these bachelor's degrees. Uh, but there are other ways that employers could look for signals as well. Um, but... What you're getting at is the sole proprietor. How would the consumer know, right? So yes. what signals can the consumer um, read in order to make a decision? Well, there now with communi uh, contemporary communications technology, there is so much out there that consumers rely on that provide significantly more information than any licensing scheme, any bachelor's degree will ever convey. I mean, you and I are sitting here on our phones. We could both pull up our phones and find out more information about practically any service provider than a licensing scheme will provide. So the reputational effects of market regulation now has, I think, 
even more power today than it ever has. So we have all these websites out there that we can rely on that provide all of this information. Um, and we can draw on crowd the power of crowdsourcing, if you will, in order to gain information. What empirical evidence do we have about the economic impacts of occupational licensing? Well, the evidence uh, suggests that licensing comes with significant costs. And there are several different costs. One is the cost to consumers in the form of higher prices. Uh, second is the cost in form of uh, fewer job opportunities, fewer ways to open businesses and build businesses that create new jobs. Uh, third is a cost in the form of fewer opportunities to migrate across states. So we have reduced interstate mobility and migration because licensing, again, it hangs a giant not welcome sign at the border and it restricts the, f the flow of new workers into a state. And there's a, the cost here to the economy is such that, keep in mind that there's, a, I think, a correlation between economic mobility and geographic mobility. So the ability to move is tied to the ability to ascend the economic ladder. Go to a job. Yes, that's exactly right. And so when we restrict geographic mobility, we are restricting economic mobility as well. So we have this significant cost that people really don't think about. Um, so. Sometimes we hear metrics out there like uh, the, we'll see a 15% increase in, in prices to consumers or we'll, uh, you know, licensing will reduce interstate mobility by 20%. So there are these measures out there. And when we compare those to the alleged benefits, we see that the cost typically will far outweigh the alleged benefits. And the empirical evidence on benefits suggests that there are very few, if any. We talked about the BA being a blunt screening mechanism. Um, not having a felony conviction is another blunt screening mechanism that uh, employers and licensing agencies uh, sometimes use. But the license itself is, uh, as you noted, a it's an either or. You either are have a license or you don't have a license. And uh, one of your colleagues developed a way to sort of understand that there's more of a continuum than simply zero or one. That's right. So for years, legislators have believed that they really only have, they're presented with two options. Either there's going to be a license or there's not going to be a license. But in t between these options, there are, in fact, many options that don't require full licensure. And it could be things like bonding and insurance and voluntary certification with uh, an outside organization. You can have registration, you can have certification, and all these options provide legislators a way to evoke the benefits of licensing, particularly signal sending, without restricting the free flow of new workers into an occupation. So one of the, I think one of the great benefits of this, this, this menu that we have created is that it finally gives legislators options that don't require them to immediately go to full licensure. I'm not convinced that that's a good idea, uh, only for a few reasons. One, registration, I would argue, would lead to licensing. Well, yeah, so it's interesting you say that. So I'd say about 10 years ago, we released our, the very first report we did at IJ was Designing Cartels. And we looked at uh, licensing in the interior design industry. And what we discovered in that was that the interior designers were using titling laws, basically certification. They were using titling laws as a stepping stone to full licensure. So your concern is, could the same thing happen? Could we have a registration system that therefore is, 
eventually over time increased into full licensure. We actually talk about that in our book, Bottleneckers, where the dietitians did that over time. They used Titling Law as a stepping stone to full licensure. So that is the potential. But often we have to think about this as compared to what? So if we, so let's say we had only the binary world. We would have legislators leaning toward licensing more often than, not, than no licensing. So registration at least gives them something that's not licensing but doesn't restrict free flow. Um, so that is certainly a concern, and it would require vigilance over time to make sure that we wouldn't see this ratcheting up effect, because ratcheting only seems to work one way, right? But it would require some vigilance to require that the ratchet doesn't continue to ratchet up toward licensing. How often, related to this, and I'm sorry for digging in here, uh, how often are registration requirements done away with? I know licenses are done away with. Licenses, well, very rarely sure. are they done away with. In fact, there was a study that came out several years ago that tried to chronicle the number of licenses that were eliminated, and I think there were less than a dozen that actually were eliminated. So registration, I would say, it's probably pretty rare that registration is eliminated um, because it, the costs are much less than licensing. Um, and consequently, I don't think there's a big push to, uh, to eliminate registration requirements. And registration, as requirements go, is fairly light, actually. The requirements you go in, you register with the government, meaning you give them a name, some contact information, you probably pay a small fee, and that's it. That's all registration typically involves. Like in Mississippi with their hair braiding registration, they go in, they give their name, the contact information, pay a small fee, and away they go. So as regulation goes, that's pretty light. But what we say with this menu of options is that what legislators should do is look for evidence of the need. What need needs to be met by regulation? And then match the need with the, what the appropriate regulatory option in the menu. And what we say is that most of the time, market regulation is going to do the trick. No government inter intervention at all will do what needs to be done. It's only rare exceptions where we need to have some other form of, reg of regulation. Whenever I read a, a newspaper article about regulation uh, or some industry that is performing poorly, according to some would-be regulators, the, uh, the phrase is always, your model of self-regulation has failed. <laughs> And that is always, it seems to me, the the rallying cry of the would-be regulator. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. They go into the legislature and they say, oh, my gosh, the, the public's exposed to all this, these, the, the scourge of unregulated practice of our occupation. It's almost self-incriminating. Uh, but that's what they are tacitly admitting in the process. And so please come in and protect the public from us, in essence, those of us who are practicing this occupation. They're making us look bad. Yeah. <laughs> there are people out there making us look bad. Yes, that's exactly right, right. But the, the, interesting, you know, the interesting thing about this is when they create the licenses, the, that process of creating a license also, often comes with a grandfathering provision. And so they say... Well, let's create this license because we need to have the people who are going to do this occupation, they need to have these requirements. They need to complete a degree and have this experience and complete this examination. Um, and so let's create this license. And oh, by the way, uh, we'll grandfather everyone in right now 
who currently, many of whom don't have these requirements, it's okay, we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll grant them the license. So it completely undermines their claim. It's to capture the constituency. Yes, that's exactly right. It's all about capture. Capture the constituency, capture the board that then regulates. So it's very much about capture. Dick Carpenter is co-author of Bottleneckers, Gaming the Government for Power and Private Profit. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.